I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Washington Post columnist and associate professor of history, Miami University in Ohio, and we're going to be talking to Dr. Kimberly Hamlin. Her uh, new book is Free Thinker, Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner. Uh, well, it was Women's History Month. My last guest did correct me, but close enough. The 100th anniversary of women's suffrage and an election year. It's the ideal time to shed light on Helen Ham- Hamilton Gardner, a suffrage for the Me Too era who paved the way for women like RBG, HRC, and AOC, as well as raising questions about racial inequality that reverberate today. Hailed as the Harriet Beecher Stowe of fallen women, Gardner is one of the least known pivotal female figures in U.S. history. After being outed in Ohio newspapers for her affair with a married man, she changed her name, moved to a new city, and became a famous reformer. Celebrated in her own time but lost to history, ultimately she was the most potent factor in getting the 19th Amendment through Congress and the highest-ranking woman in federal government. Professor Hamlin contributes to the Made by History series in the Washington Post and other popular media. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Kimberly. Catherine, it's great to be here. And, you know, I will say that around here, every month is Women's History Month. So I will be on your show anytime. <laughs> well, that's great. I think one of the things I think you said, maybe it was in one of the Made by History article or one of those, the, the series that you did. It's like, uh-huh. why do we have to have Women's History Month particularly? I mean, history is history, like men and women created history. But we have to single, we don't have Men's History Month, do we? Exactly. We have men's history infinity. (laughs) We have men's (laughs) history year. Um, So that was the point of my most recent Washington Post column about Women's History Month, and especially in the context of the 2020 election and the suffered centennial, because my larger point in that was saying that the stories we tell about our past shape what we think is possible for the future. So the extent to which we have a politics that's basically trust the old white man in charge that has to do with our past stories that we tell that are mostly about the white men in charge. So I think if we told different stories about our past, highlighted different figures, different struggles, then we would see different outcomes in the future. I think that's so true. About right when I was still traveling, uh, my partner, he and I went to Memphis, Tennessee. And I thought about this when, you know, in reading about your book that, and we went to the civil rights museum, which I had mm-hmm. huge, yep. I don't know if you've been there, but uh, yep. I was struck by all of these African-American women, doctors, lawyers, politicians who have, you know, all part of our history and made all these um, contributions. I, and I didn't know any of them. And uh, yes. it was which is what, in your book, that's who we're talking about, somebody that we've never even heard of, who was a pivotal female figure in uh, getting the 19th Amendment passed, I mean, or through Congress. Um, there are so exactly. many of them. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what I, I mean, in terms of a takeaway message, I hope that that's something that readers will think. I hope that people will think, gosh, you know, I can't believe I've never heard of Helen Hamilton Gardner. And if I've never heard of her, even though she was, for example, the highest ranking woman in federal government, who else have I never heard of? You know, that's the question. Who else have I never heard of? And why? Why are these stories not 
interwoven, you know, why aren't they central in the stories that we tell about ourselves as a nation and as a people? Um, one essay that I really like, and I taught this past fall in my women's history class, is Rebecca Solnit's City of Women essay, and that's the one where she writes about what it would be like just to imagine the world if you get to walk around and see buildings and streets and monuments named for women. And then she commissioned um, an artist to redo the New York subway map with all the stops named for women. You've probably seen that online. And so I, we talked about it in my women's history class, and that was ended up what the students did for their final projects is they redid our campus map. Like, imagine if things were named for women and what messages, you know, subtle and implicit and you know, vocal and out there that would send about what is possible and about who made our world and what our world is really like. Yeah. So I think well, we I should th- name all of the women. <laughs> I think that's a great time. idea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So let's get back to the woman that you, the woman that you yes. wrote about that nobody's heard about, but now we have since you wrote the book. So uh, why or how did you get, you know, decide to write about um, um, Kimberly I mean, how did you, you know, how did you uh, decide to write about Ms. Gardner? How did I meet <laughs> Helen yeah, Hamilton how did you, Gardner? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I first came across her when I was working on my dissertation um, in the early 2000s at the University of Texas in Austin. And I was working on a project that looked at how 19th century women used science to make arguments about women's rights, meaning they were looking for something besides religion to kind of justify their ideas that women were equal. And so I was flipping through the pages of this popular magazine called Popular Science Monthly. And that was a really, um, you know, high subscription, high readership magazine in the 19th century. And I came across these articles and these letters between a woman named Helen Hamilton Gardner and one of, the wor- one of the nation's leading neurologists, William Hammond. And he was a founding member and early president of the American Neurological Association. And Hammond claimed that he had discovered 19 ways that women's brains were, quote, naturally inferior to men's. And these natural brain inferiorities explained, Hammond said, why women shouldn't go to college, why women shouldn't have careers, why women couldn't be you know, in public life. And so Helen Hamilton Gardner, who at that point I had never heard of, starts writing him these letters saying, you know, this makes no sense. I've done research too. And she kind of logically disputes every element of his claims. And so I thought, who is this bold woman that has the nerve, you know, to write the nation's top neurologist in this magazine and take on his claims? And so I just kind of started following her from there. Um, So my first book, which is called From Eve to Evolution. She was, you know, kind of one of many characters, but I just kept thinking about her. And so then I would look for her in other places. And I saw, for example, that she later moved to Washington and became involved in suffrage. So I looked for her there and thought, and was amazed to find that not only was she in Washington, she became, as you said in the intro, the most potent factor in congressional passage of the 19th Amendment. And then uh, President Wilson appointed her to the Civil Service Commission in 1920. In fact, April 13th, this Monday, will be the 100th anniversary of her first day on the job. And this made her the highest ranking woman and a national symbol. I mean, papers from coast to coast, big, small, everything in between, covered her appointment as a way to say, wow, women really are a part of the government. Women are citizens. The 19th Amendment hadn't yet been ratified, but it had passed Congress. So people knew it was on the near horizon and her her post was really symbolic in that way. And then I just, so yeah, the more I looked, the more I found her. And I came to think of her um, 
as sort of a Forrest Gump of the women's rights movement, meaning she was at all of the major events. She knew all the key players. And so if I followed her trail, I could tell the whole story of the 19th century women's rights movement that culminated in the vote um, through her kind of as our narrator, because she was so uh, interesting and so involved in many facets of the women's rights movement over the years. And start from the beginning, her beginning, I guess. You know, I always wonder where did her strength come from? As you say, how, you know, she was at a, in a position or she felt like she was in a position to confront this neurologist, uh, yeah. uh, the scientist. Where does that kind of, where do you think or where does that kind of strength come from? She credited her ancestors. She said that she um, credited her ancestors with giving her the strength and the, to tell the truth. And so I interpret that a couple of ways. Um, she was born a Chenoweth of Virginia, which was a leading family of Virginia, also a slave-owning family. Um, but her father was a Methodist minister who came to, he inherited his family slaves, but was conflicted about it and ultimately came to reject slavery. And so he emancipated the people that he held in bondage when um, Gardner was one and then moved the whole family to Indiana and raised them there. And then he went on to fight for the union along with all three of her brothers. So she really revered her father because of course, you know, this was not a popular thing for a Virginia slave owner to do. They lost um, you know, money and land, all of her brothers, they weren't, they didn't die in the Civil War, but they received injuries <clears throat> or contracted diseases that ultimately cut their lives very short. Um, so she saw this brave sacrifice for one's ideals as kind of the way that you're supposed to live your life. So she really was inspired by her father. And then even though she didn't grow up in Virginia, she grew up with these stories about what it meant to be a Chenoweth of Virginia. So I think she grew up feeling that she was a person descended from people of significance. So I think that gave her sort of, I don't want to say an entitlement, but a little bit, because it is also about whiteness in some ways, as we'll, I'm sure, get to later. Um, But it gave her the confidence to say what she felt and to think that she had a right to say it even though she had virtually no female role models at the time of people doing anything like what she did or what she aspired to do. You know, it's interesting because when you're talking about that she revered her father and that he had a great influence on her, um, I, I was thinking about Elizabeth Blackwell. I think she was the, one of the first mm-hmm. or the first physicians yep. in the 1800s, yep. and she too had that yep. experience with her father. And I'm wondering if yep. that isn't... Can, is a piece of it that, you know, that say in the 1800s or 19s, it doesn't matter, but that that really makes a difference or made a difference in a lot of these women's lives. I don't know if that's been mm-hmm. your experience. In, in, yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. She was really inspired by her father and also her oldest brother, Bernard, her oldest brother, Bernard, um, when she was just a girl, he moved to the Kansas, Missouri border, which, you know, before the civil war was like the hottest you know, part of the activity in terms of which state would would be admitted as slave and which would be admitted as free. And he started a free soil newspaper. And, you know, people shot at him, people burned down his press. And then he was, as soon as the Civil War broke out, he was among the first people to enlist for the Union. So she also really revered him and kind of thought, oh, that's what you do. When there's a big issue you care about, you move yourself across the country and you sacrifice your life for it. Um, and her brother Bernard was also a free thinker, and you'll, that's the title of my book, obviously. And in the 19th century context, free thinker means atheist or agnostic. And um, Gardner's father was a minister, and her mom was also a devout Christian. 
So it was a shock to the family that Bernard turned out to be a free thinker. And Gardner, you know, took Bernard's side. She loved reading his books. She read Thomas Paine. And that, I think, was another big influence in kind of giving her the confidence and the boldness to chart her own path in life, this early questioning of religion and of all the whys and what fors that she had been told growing up. She was always a questioner, always saying why and says who. Well, let's talk about her scandal, because that's always interesting. She got outed in Ohio because she was having an affair (laughs) with a married man. We do want to know about that, too. I want to know about that. Yes, (laughs) yes. Um, So her sex scandal is really the pivotal moment in her life. That is what starts um, Helen Hamilton Gardner on her path to reform and feminism. So as I mentioned, her whole family, you know, kind of scatters or dies, they lose everything in the Civil War, and she's the youngest of seven. So at the age of 19, she does what many middle and working class white women do in the 1870s, which is she decides to become a teacher because that was basically the only kind of socially acceptable way for middle class women to support themselves. So she moves to Cincinnati, goes to teacher training school, and then by 23, She's the youngest principal in Ohio. She's living in a town called Sandusky in northern Ohio and by all accounts doing a great job. The newspaper is raving about her and saying, you know, she's got the best students who are doing the best job, blah, blah. And then people start chatting about how the Ohio commissioner of schools, this guy Charles Smart, is constantly coming to Sandusky. And people start wondering, like, of all the cities and towns in Ohio, why is school commissioner Smart always in Sandusky, you know, it's not the biggest city, it's not the capital, <laughs> why is he here all the time? And Gardner, who at the time her name was Alice Chenoweth, has the misfortune to live in a boarding house um, along with the editor of the newspaper's brother and sister-in-law. So she's like on this, you know, direct like line <laughs> of gossip to the city paper. So the city paper eventually prints the story that school commissioner Smart has been coming to Sandusky not to check in on the public schools, but to visit the beautiful young principal. So her affair costs her her job, as it you know her she gets ousted um, in the paper, ousted from her job, and outed in the papers for having this scandalous affair. So she leaves Sandusky in disgrace in the summer of 1876. And then she, the historical record on her precise whereabouts is kind of murky for the next several years. But during that time, I think she reads widely and questions, you know, why, why are women held to such different standards when it comes to sex? Why is she shamed in the paper while her lover carries on? Why is virginity, she writes later, supposed to be a woman's most prized possession? She has this great quote where she says, you know, a man is valued for many things, least of which is his chastity. A woman, on the other hand, she says, is valued for a few things. Most, you know, the most primary one is her chastity. Why is that, she says. So that's really the question that starts her on her path of reform is this questioning of the double sexual double standard. And what did happen to her lover? I suppose nothing in terms of his career or or. Do we know well, his career? I mean, compared to compared to some um, modern men in current times who have faced a little to no consequences, <laughs> um, he yeah. does have some consequences in that um, Charles Smart lost the nomination for school commissioner the next time he was up for it, which was 1878, um, and in part because of the scandal. But his you know high placed 
white male friends helped him get a job in the insurance industry. So he just got another job. You know, nothing. He did face some consequences, but nothing so severe as being humiliated across the state and, you know, stripped of the only way you could make a living. <laughs> so he moves to Detroit um, and joins the Equitable Life Assurance Society, one of the leading life insurance agencies in the 19th century, and he stays married to his wife. But then eventually Gardner joins him and they start pretending that they are married. And she lives for the next 25 years with Charles Smart saying that they are married when in fact, I'm pretty sure they were never married. And that's what she, she would, once she becomes famous, she tells everyone that she's her husband and that they got married in 1875, which I think is the year that their affair began. So it may have kind of felt like they were married to Gardner, um, but they were not, as far as I could tell, married in the eyes of church or state. Uh, she was like 100, 200 years, obviously, before her time, right? I mean, it's a, it, yes, what a story. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's well, so, that's, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And the best, I mean, the thing, the part that kind of the punchline of the story, too, is, you know, so for, to be a fallen woman in the 19th century, I should add, was, you know, considered like a fate worse than death, basically. If you were, you know, thought or suspected or known to have sex before marriage, you know, it was considered basically that your life was over. What man, what respectable man would marry a woman who wasn't a virgin? What job could you get, you know, besides prostitution? Having sex before marriage was considered like the express train to prostitution. So Gardner rejects all of that. And rather than kind of slink away in shame and accepts her fate as a fallen woman, a fallen woman, she moves to New York City and changes her name from Alice Chenoweth to Helen Hamilton Gardner and becomes a speaker on the free thought lecture circuit, decrying the Bible and Christianity for the sexual double standard and for the, you know, dominant idea that women were naturally inferior to men. Well, she doesn't accept the definition of herself by somebody else, right? Exactly. I mean, that, yeah, yeah, that's, I, I think women still obviously are struggling with that today, right? I, I mean, you talk about yes. the yeah, Me Too movement and all those kinds of things. So uh, in, uh, when exactly. you, how, how about your students? What's their reaction cause it, to, to the book? Um, well, I didn't assign it. It wasn't out yet um, when I was teaching my women's history class in the fall, but I did talk to them about it. And, you know, they were really drawn to her story, um, not just the sex part, but the reinvention part, and also the the role of race in her story and the role of racism in the suffrage movement more broadly. But um, like a bigger takeaway message of my classes on history of sex, history of gender, history of women, is the persistence of rape and sexual assault in women's lives, you know, trans historically and transnationally. And that is something that my students always want to talk more about. So in the fall, um, I'm teaching a new class called Me Too in Historical and Cultural Context where we'll delve more deeply into that because that is um, a real, something that really resonates with students, especially on college campuses where rape is, you know, such an issue today. Uh, and so a, a part of Gardner's story that I did talk about with my students in the fall and, and will do in the future is her involvement in the Age of Consent campaigns. I don't know if that stood out to you. Um, in the materials that you got about the book, but Gardner learned politics. She learned how to lobby and she learned, you know, how a bill becomes a law. These lessons that she crucially applies to the 19th amendment later, she learns them in the 1890s when she joined the movement to raise the age of sexual consent for girls. Which, this oh, is where which was she 12 years old, right? I think, yes, I did read that. Yes. It was 12 and then she raised yes. it to what? Yeah. 
to 18. Mm-hmm. Well, how does this fit in? And and as I said to my last guest, like, can we put this in now our present context? Let's say you're talking about uh, the age of consent. You're talking about rape. And now with people having yeah. to the domestic violence statistics are going up and up and up because people who had a problem before and now they're confined yes. in a small space. So yes. what, I mean, um, I mean do we, yeah. a couple through lines or connections, I think, is the importance of having women in office. Uh, that was certainly the takeaway message for Gardner and the other women who worked on the age of consent campaigns. That's, I think, what converted hundreds of thousands of temperance activists into suffrage workers was seeing just how hard it was to get common sense laws changed to raise the age of sexual consent from 7, 10, or 12 to 16 or 18. So they learned that, you know, it's really important to have women in office, not just women voting, but women in office. And I'll tell you just one, you know, um, small, small, like fun fact about this, which is that the very first law ever proposed by a woman state legislator in the United States was proposed in 1895 by Representative Carrie Holly in Colorado. So the year after women were enfranchised in Colorado, three women were elected to the state legislature. And Carrie Holly proposed a law to obviously raise the age of sexual consent for girls. So this women took as a sign of like, oh, this is what happens when women are in office. We can protect our bodies. We can legislate change that makes it, you know, legal for us to have a say over what happens to our bodies. So that's one that I think we are making strides towards, as your last guest talked about, but still have a long way to go to having women um, elected in equal numbers in Congress than at all levels of government. So that's one. And the other idea, I think, is the sexual double standard, which is still pervasive, obviously, and especially, I think, for women in politics. Um, I have an op-ed that I've written but hasn't been published yet about the sex lives of female candidates, right? Like, I feel like women who want to run for office are still held to this antiquated standard of, you know, virgin slash mother, like asexual mother slash widow, that the idea, you know, like Representative Katie Hill, for example, that women are supposed to be very um, uh, traditionally sexual pertains to women candidates in a way that it does not pertain to men. So I think that's another resonance between HHG, as I call her, her story and today. So I'm going to look for that. Sex lies of female politicians. That's the next one. That's yes, your next I will book. let you know when I get it published. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's <laughs> we're waiting. It's great. We have. <laughs> yes. I hate. Yeah. Um, we have a couple minutes left. So tell us where we can go to. Well, get more information about all your books, and I, I want to. You the article that you just wrote uh, for the Made by History series. We want to be able to link to that, right? Which I did. Oh, yes. Great. Okay. Um, So my website is KimberlyHamlin.com. It has um, my canceled book tour events, like Jennifer was (laughs) saying, your previous guest. Um, My book just came out a week after Jennifer, so um, my whole tour was canceled. Um, And it has links to all of my essays and also some excerpts from the book, which have been published, um, for example, in Smithsonian Magazine, Rena the first serial uh, on March 10th. You could find that there if you wanted to read a little bit more before committing uh, to purchase. <laughs> you could do that there and you can find me on Twitter at Professor Hamlin and the my um, most recent Washington Post article that you mentioned is um, from March 1st and in the, Made by History col- in the Made by History column about Women's History Month. I also have my first one I wrote um, was about the age of consent 
and it was linked to the Roy Moore, if you remember his campaign. Um, I do. Senate <laughs> in 2017. And then another one that might be of interest, um, since we didn't have time to get into it as much today, is about the role of race and racism in congressional passage of the 19th Amendment. And that's called How Racism Almost Killed Women's Right to Vote. And that was from June 4th, 2019 in the Washington Post. Great, great information. So much to talk about and so much to, to read right now, especially why we're staying at home, which uh, Free yes. Thinker. Yeah, that's great. Uh, free Thinker, Sex yes, Suffrage. Available. Yeah, go ahead. Extraordinary Life oh, so, with yeah, Helen Hamilton Gardner. Great yes, having you on the show. Anywhere books are sold. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate Thank- the opportunity to speak with you. Great to talk to you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 